Well, friends, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. Uh, amen. This, there, there's the day of resurrection, right? That's Easter Sunday. That was last week, at least if you're in the West. Today, actually, in the Eastern Church, they're celebrating Easter today. So we're, we're still rolling with it. Uh, about half the world is still, is still celebrating the resurrection. And then there's not just a day of resurrection, but there is a season of resurrection. It's 50-day season. It's a church calendar season, like Lent is a season of fasting leading up to Easter, then the Easter season is a 50-day season of feasting that leads up to Pentecost Sunday in about six weeks. And then really, there's a sense in which every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. Fundamentally, every Sunday, the Christian church celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're celebrating resurrection today on a bunch of different levels, and I hope that you're able to enter into this by the grace of God. I'm going to be teaching through this new series called Triumph, and I want to talk about the ways Christ's triumph over death makes a real and practical difference in our lives today. Uh, how the story of the resurrection can serve as, as a grand narrative, as the big story in which we find our own stories. What does that mean? Well, I think there are two images that uh, have emerged as very helpful for me. First, how can the resurrection serve as a lens through which I see life? How can resurrection be the lens through which I see life? And secondly, how can resurrection serve as like a map uh, with which I navigate life? So really, this series, for the next five, six weeks, this is a practical theology series. This is about how to allow a doctrine, a teaching, i.e. the resurrection, how to allow that to shape our understanding. Um, and so that's how we're going to uh, proceed forward. So practical theology series. Five years ago, we did this book called Kingdom Come. It was also a series of resurrection teachings, but this was more like a practice of the resurrection. Um, this book covered seven ways that we can experience resurrection here and now. Uh, essentially, it's seven things that John's revelation says we're going to be doing in eternity, but we can, we can also start doing them here and now, like changing the way we approach eating with people, changing the way we worship, uh, understanding learning from an eternal perspective. So we, we printed these books. We sold like a thousand of them, and they're all gone, but we're going to put them online tonight. So if you'd like this as like a supplement, it'll be on Amazon tonight. Uh, just wanted to, I thought of that way too late. I thought of that after church last week. Oh, we did a book about this. I should have made that available. All right. I want to start this morning with a couple of disclaimers. Hopefully these will sort of serve as two ideas to frame today's sermon. Uh, the first is about Sri Lanka. Uh, we need to acknowledge that for a growing percentage of Christians in the world, the message of Easter, the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus triumphs over death is a profoundly timely and relevant message because their leading threat to their faith is death. One spokesman for an organization that monitors religious persecution around the world tweeted last Sunday afternoon, we no longer wake up on Sunday morning asking if, but where Christians will be killed. Life for Christians during the first and second centuries like during the time of the writing of the Bible, when Peter and Paul and James and John are writing the letters of the New Testament, it's actually very similar to life in the world today for about 10% of Christians around the world for whom severe religious persecution is a real threat. 
So I want to acknowledge this morning that the question that we asked last Sunday, which was essentially, how does the resurrection, how does the message of the resurrection impact my, my life here and now? It was the theme of our Easter teachings. It was probably the theme of most American churches' sermon, actually. How does this ancient experience, how does this historic truth, how does this teaching from the Bible impact our life today? Our asking that question like we asked it reveals to, uh, that for many of us, our pressing problems, our concerns, the things that keep us up at night are significantly different from the problems and concerns and real threats affecting Christians in other parts of the world like Sri Lanka. In other words, when survivors uh, and others connected to those communities like St. Anthony Shrine and St. Sebastian's Church and Zion Church and other communities in Sri Lanka, when they come together again, maybe some of them are meeting today, they're going to have a lot of challenging questions that they're going to be asking, but they're not going to struggle to figure out what difference the resurrection makes in their life today. They're not going to struggle with that. Um, Because Jesus' victory over death is a profoundly relevant message for them today. The message of Christ's triumph over death is profoundly and tragically relevant uh, for many Christians in the world today. So we should be very clear that we are part of a communion of saints whose lives are being challenged by severe adversity and that Christ's triumph over over death addresses that. That Christ's triumph over death has something to say to folks in those situations. So that's one side of this frame. The other side, the second thing I hope to say is that we can acknowledge this severe adversity without having to, by extension, dismiss our own perhaps less severe challenges. Acknowledging this, in other words, does not equal dismissing or needing to dismiss our perhaps less severe adversities as somehow unaffected by the resurrection. So on one hand, you've got persecution. On the other hand, you've got less severe but not unaffected other adversities that are affecting us. In other words, I spent yesterday, most of yesterday, um, trying to deal with the challenging financial situation. Nothing catastrophic, uh, just college taxes, bills, and car maintenance. Um, So uh, it it would be a mistake, I believe, to see a financial challenge as a similar kind of adversity to severe religious persecution, right? It is not the same. It is not the same. And, And yet it would also be a mistake for me to say that Christ's resurrection has nothing to say to financial challenges. That would also be a mistake. I worked with several people this week on very difficult personal issues, relational issues, spiritual issues, and I would not put those challenges in the same category of adversity as planned and synchronized uh, attacks on Christians in their places of worship. I'm sorry, I just don't see them in the same category, but neither would I say that the resurrection of Jesus has nothing to say to these also difficult situations or to whatever real adversity you're facing today in your family as an individual or with others. So, I thought we should start by just acknowledging that this tendency towards comparison is, it misses the point. When our family was going through cancer treatment, 
uh, about 10 years ago, some people would apologize before they shared with me their problem. They would say, I know this is nothing like what you're going through, but... And, and whereas I appreciated their acknowledgement of the challenge of our situation, uh, that was not at all um, to say that their adversity wasn't also really challenging and difficult and, and legit, right? Um, it's not about whose pain is worse. It's about how do we remain faithful through whatever pain it is that we're facing. It's about how does the resurrection of Jesus, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to say to our adversity or to our pain? Whether it's your pain or my pain or prolonged systemic adversity or the pain of senseless violence or even the pain of a brief setback, you know, like a broken car or something like that. Does the resurrection have anything to say to all of that, to all of that? Clearly, the early church believed and taught that Jesus' resurrection conquered death. And what they meant by that was death. <laughs> they meant actual death. That's what they were talking about. And that changed the way they saw the world in which dying for their faith was a real possibility. It changed that, right? And it changed the way they navigated or lived out their lives in the face of that severe kind of adversity, the resurrection emboldened people to go where they would never have gone before with a courage that was impossible to imagine before uh, the, the reality and the demonstration of the fact that death had been defeated by the resurrection of Christ. Now, we can learn from them when we face similar situations. And I want to say that we can also learn from them when we're facing adversities that are clearly less severe but real and challenging still, okay? So, um, hopefully, we can frame today's sermon as having something to say to people experiencing the kind of adversity that they experienced last Sunday in Sri Lanka, and hopefully this sermon has something to say to people who live in your house and anywhere in between, right? All right, so let's look at John's gospel. This is, we'll look at the 16th chapter of John, page 753 in the Red Bible that we've handed out. Um, let me tell you a little bit about John as, we, as you turn to that, that page. The author of this gospel is believed to be Jesus' disciple, John, his closest disciple. Sometimes Jesus travels not with his 12, but just with three men, Peter, James, and John. This is this John. And then we also see other scenes where, where Jesus seems to have this really special relationship with John. John's in the, 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 the seat of honor at the Last Supper. He is right next to Jesus. Later that night, when the rest of the disciples run away in fear from Jesus to avoid similar uh, arrest and torture that they're seeing Jesus endure, only a few people stay close to Jesus. Those would be his mom, Mary, a couple other women, and John. John stays. As Jesus is dying, he entrusts his mother to John. Right? That says something. John records more details about Jesus' death than any of the other gospel writers. If you, if you scoped out the 21 chapters of John, they basically fall into four categories, and this is on your notes. There's a very brief beginning. One chapter devoted to the first, actually starts with the beginning of time and goes through the baptism of Jesus at age 30. And then there's 10 chapters that cover his three-year public ministry. And then there are seven chapters. A third of the gospel covers 24 hours of Jesus' life from Thursday night to Friday. 
seven chapters on a day. And then there's an ending, a conclusion, two chapters about the resurrection and the early church. I'm just telling you all of this to give you a context for the verse I want to focus on. Just one verse at the very end of chapter 16. John records beginning uh, partway through chapter 13 and running through 14 and running through 15 and running all the way through 16, this long section of Jesus' teachings on the night, the last night he spends with his disciples. Presumably, this is what Jesus is talking to them about at the Last Supper that they share together. And in my Bible, the words of Jesus are printed in red ink. And at this section, you got page after page after page of just a big red block. It's this long, long section of Jesus' teaching. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about a whole lot of things. He's talking about his commandment to love. He's talking about the Father. He's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He's talking about how he's going to go away and yet how he's going to always be with them. He's talking about the whole I am the vine, you are the branches teaching. That happens at this, this, in this night. He's talking about persecution and about power and about grief and about joy. And then finally, Jesus says this, chapter 16, verse 33. I've told you these things, like all these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, I've used my remarkable graphic design skills to create uh, the beginnings of a drawing that we'll use as sort of a sketch for this sermon. Sometimes uh, it helps me to kind of get into a statement that I know is more dense and significant than it appears initially by drawing stuff or creating stuff. So um, it, was a, it was my best shot. Sometimes my vision is so amazing and my ability is so limited. It's just so limited. Yeah. So... Uh, let's look at three key words that, um, that exist in this single verse, John 16, 33. First, this word world. We've got to look at this word world because world is used in several ways to mean several different things in the New Testament. Sometimes the word world means a physical space like the planet. Sometimes it is used to mean the inhabitants of that space like the whole human race. It, this, in this point, um, or in this part of scripture, the word is used to refer to, here comes a big long definition, worldly affairs, the aggregate of things earthly, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which, although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, seduce from God, and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. It's a long definition, so let's focus on the phrase, obstacles to the cause of Christ. When you read the world in this passage, you're thinking about obstacles to the cause of Christ. When Jesus says, in this world, he means, as you are living among the obstacles. And he assumes that's where we live. It's interesting that he doesn't tell us, leave that place. In fact, part of the big red section of my Bible leading up to this verse says the opposite. He says, be in the world, don't be of it, but be in it. In fact, he prays to the Father that God would not take his disciples out of the world. Jesus prays that. So by the world, he means 
obstacles, living among the obstacles to God's cause. Secondly, he assumes that's where we live. We live among the obstacles. And finally, Jesus says this about the world. We're going to have trouble here. We're going to have trouble here. He says it like this. In this world, you will have trouble. Call it an observation, a warning, a statement of fact, whatever. But friends, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Christians miss this all the time. Oh yeah, I've heard that, but you haven't heard it. There will be trouble. You are living among the obstacles, and you're going to have trouble here. Going to have trouble here. It's going to be hard here. Jesus says this to his disciples. And by extension, he says this to us. Second really important couple of words in this verse, in me, in me. It's a super important phrase. It often gets left out. And if you leave this phrase out, um, it changes the whole meaning of what Jesus is saying here. The verse begins, I have told you these things. What things? The whole previous three and a half chapters. Why have you told us these things, Jesus? What was your point? What was your purpose in saying all these things? He says, so that you may have peace. At least that's how it's remembered by many of us. That's how it's usually quoted in broader circles as if the teachings of Jesus, just like the teachings of Gandhi or Buddha or anybody else, will lead to a more peaceful existence. But that's not exactly what Jesus says, is it? It's not what he says. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So that in me you may have peace. So Jesus' words, what does this mean? It means that Jesus' words are not just a collection of good ideas that will help us live a more peaceful life. In other words, the point is not Jesus' teachings. The point is Jesus. Right, and, and you could even go so far as to say that Jesus' teachings are designed to lead us to Jesus. He says, in me you will have peace. In me. I've told you, here's the correct quote. I've told you all these things so that you, well, I actually said correct quote and I've already uh, embellished it here. But essentially, you will embrace, you will experience peace in me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now, what in the world does that mean? Being in me or in Christ is meant to be seen in contrast to being in the world. You've got two spaces, so to speak. You've got in Christ, you've got in the world. These are very different places. These are very different value systems. These are very different experiences. They're very different stories happening here. Lots of things make being in the world different from being in Christ, but perhaps the most obvious and practical is what Jesus explicitly says when he says, in me, you'll have peace, and in the world, you'll have trouble. I can get my head around that. In me, you'll have peace, 
in the world, you'll have trouble. Now, be careful because what our, what our Western minds want to do with these two realities is pit them against one another, put them in direct opposition to one another, like they're two totally different destinations at the end of two separate paths, like there's a fork in the road, and if you go left, you go to peace, and if you go to the right, then you, you go to trouble. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, you're in the world. You're in the world. That's where you live, and there's trouble there. Okay. You're in trouble already. You're in the world, and that's where trouble is. You're in trouble. Okay. He is also saying, you can be in me. I've told you these things so that you will be in me and that in me you will have peace. And that, friends, presents us with this very fascinating and I think very helpful possibility. What is, what is the helpful possibility? That you can experience peace in the face of trouble. <laughs> that you can experience peace in the presence of adversity. It's not extract me from reality and put me in nirvana. It is in the midst of real life, there is a possibility that I can be in Christ and therefore uh, be filled with peace. All right, here's a third and final word. It's the word overcome. Really important. Clearly, Jesus' hope and his expectation for his followers is that even though they are surrounded by trouble, that they or we will be filled with peace. So even though there is trouble on the outside, Jesus is talking about the possibility of having peace on the inside. Remember, Jesus is telling this to his disciples when? On the night of his betrayal, on the night of his suffering, there is trouble all around it is eminent. It is on its way with spears and torches and deception like kisses. But the imperative, the command from this passage is clear. Jesus says, but take heart or take courage. The old translations, be of good cheer, right? He gives one reason for that. Because I've overcome the world. Because I've overcome the world. Overcome is critical because it communicates to us which of these two powers is the most powerful. Which is the greater power? In other words, we're not just talking about the world where we experience trouble and then Christ where we experience peace. And these are two similarly powerful realities. It's not what he's saying. Jesus is the greater reality. Jesus is more powerful than the world. Christ has overcome the world. That's the whole point of this, right? Which he says, by the way, before he actually accomplishes it in our way of thinking. I mean, it's profound, right? Jesus' triumph over death, which he is about to accomplish and yet speaks of as in the past tense, as though it has already happened, because in a sense, it has, will publicly demonstrate that the powers of this world, all the obstacles to the cause of Christ, have been rendered inferior there is a more powerful reality in the game now. It's called resurrection. Jesus has overcome all of that other stuff. 
So clearly this is what he hopes and expects his disciples to know. Clearly this is what he hopes and expects for all of us to know. Specifically that peace overcomes adversity. Peace overcomes trouble. We can experience peace even in the midst of adversity. How? How do I do that? By being in Christ, by finding ourselves in Christ, by rooting our identity in Christ, by placing our hope in Christ, by positioning our lives in Christ, who has overcome the world. And that leads to just a really simple, practical, theological question. If you just remember one thing, just remember this. Where are you living? Where are you living? The fact that you're in the world is a given. Okay? You're in the world. Are you, could you be in Christ? Are you in Christ? You're in the world. The invitation is to be in Christ, to find our peace in Christ, and to take heart, to be full of courage because he has overcome this world. So in conclusion, uh, when the story of the resurrection becomes our story, what does that mean? When it becomes the lens through which we see life, And when it becomes the map with which we navigate it, one of the many ways this changes our story is this. Even in the midst of this world, with all of its trouble, we can have peace. That's what it means. In the midst of all the trouble, we can have peace. By seeing life through the lens of resurrection, we recognize Christ has overcome this world. I got real pain, real adversity, real deception, real problems, but I'm seeing this all through the lens of a greater truth, which is resurrection. What does that tell me? Christ is more powerful than all this stuff, okay? Christ is more powerful than all this stuff. That's a game changer. Resurrection changes our view of the world. It changes our view of, of disappointments. It changes our view of tragedy. Resurrection changes the way we see. And secondly, resurrection also serves as a very helpful map because it shows us that the way to peace is not to leave this world. It's, not to, it's certainly not to embrace this world. The way to peace, even in the midst of trouble, is to be in Christ. It's to be in Christ that's the, I am devastated right now. I am, I, my heart is breaking right now. The map of resurrection says go towards Christ, be in Christ. It doesn't say, oh, that isn't as hard as my thing. It doesn't say, oh, that's not a really a bad, it, it acknowledges there are all kinds of obstacles uh, to the cause of Christ and you're right in the middle of it. And it is a real threat That's why this is not a game, but it says your next step is toward Christ because you want to be in Christ. The way to peace, even in the midst of trouble, is to be in Christ. Peace is found in Christ. That's where you find it. 
okay? Where's peace? It's in Christ. That's where it lives. That's where we need to live. We need to live there where you live in. That's where we need to live. And that's what the resurrection powerfully claims, that being in Christ becomes the defining reality. Being in Christ becomes the ultimate goal. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter how bad the conditions are. It doesn't matter what kind of adversity we're facing, whether it's the kind of adversity faced in Sri Lanka last week or the kind of adversity that you know you're going home to this afternoon. No matter where we are, no matter what kinds of adversities we're facing, we can be in a place of peace. We can live in Christ because Christ overcomes the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, we pray in the face of so many other kinds of messages that we could be shaped by the truth of your word. Um, I pray that words shared this morning would be effective and that you would use the gospel um, throughout this week especially to shape our understanding of things. May we be people of the resurrection. And thank you, Christ, for overcoming the world. May peace reign in our hearts. May we find ourselves, root ourselves, tie ourselves to you. May we be in you, and may we know your peace. I pray especially for the hurting today. May they have grace for this battle this week. May the way be clear. May they step in to you and know your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.